This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. And so now I realize that the Advent season is all about the coming and the arrival and the birth of Jesus. So why a sermon on the birth of of John? And the reason is this. Luke presents Jesus' birth in a way that is inextricably bound to John's birth. And by that I mean this, the two births cannot be separated. You cannot read of the one without reading of the other. The, The two parallel stories are inseparably woven together by Luke. So if you actually have your Bibles, you might want to have them open for this sermon. I'm going to be in chapter one a good bit and chapter three some. Uh, The text is provided uh, in your worship folder for the uh, actual sermon. If you will just give me a minute or two, I want to show you what I mean by these two being inseparably woven together. In verses five to 25, Luke tells us of the angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah, promising him that Elizabeth would conceive and give birth to a son. Right after that, in verses 26 to 38, Luke tells us of Gabriel's visit to Mary, promising her that she would uh, conceive uh, as a virgin. Zechariah and Mary are both told very specifically to name their children John for Zechariah and Jesus for Mary. In both cases, God's promise through Gabriel was met with doubt. In both cases, God provided a sign to bolster the faith of the one who doubted. Zechariah was deaf and dumb until his son John was born and named. That's our text for this morning. Mary was told that her distant relative Elizabeth had conceived in her old age. When the pregnant Mary goes to see Elizabeth, John, in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy at the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb. In both cases, when the promise of God is fulfilled, a song of praise is sung to God and recorded by Luke. Mary's Magnificat in verses 46 and following. Zechariah's Benedictus in verses 68 and following. After the recording of of John's birth at the very end of chapter 1, that's our text today, Jesus' birth is recorded at the very beginning of chapter 2. Luke, by weaving these two stories together, is showing us that the two births uh, uh, have to be uh, understood together. Uh, Because you will understand more fully Jesus if you know about John. You'll you'll more fully understand Jesus' life and ministry and purpose if you understand John's life, ministry, and purpose. And so in the Advent season, we're going to stop for a week and think about John. Our outline this morning, for I know an extensive passage, uh, it's going to flow from the question asked in verse 66. So if you'd look there, I think this will be an anchor for the entire morning. Because of these peculiar circumstances around John's birth, okay, the relatives and the neighbors of Elizabeth, and in fact, uh, the whole hill country of Judea, they were pondering this question found in the middle of verse 66. What, not who, but what then will this child be? What role will he play? What title will he hold? Think about all the peculiar circumstances around John's birth. His really old parents conceived and his barren mother delivered a son. His well-respected father, a righteous priest, was deaf and dumb for a year after serving in the temple by the sovereign choice of God through the casting of lots. When his dad does begin to speak, he continually blesses God, praising him through song. 
His parents, they're adamant about naming him John, although none of his relatives had ever been given that name. Middle of verse 66, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. If you think about the text from 50,000 feet, in in verses 67 to 79, Luke records a prophecy and a hymn of praise by Zechariah. It's the so-called Benedictus. It's based on the first word um, in in verse uh, uh, 67. uh, In the Latin translations, it's it's just the word for blessed. And so, so the Benedictus is Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's essentially answering the question, what John will be. If you look down at verse 76, he says very specifically, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And so for eight verses, verses 68 to 75, Zechariah talks about the role that Jesus will play in God's story. And then in light of that, and in order to shed light on that, in verses 76 to 79, Zechariah describes the role that John will play. Okay, so this morning... We're going to look at Zechariah's answer. I know that was a long introduction, but there's only two points, so I stole a little time from you at the beginning. We're going to look at Zechariah's answer to this question of what John will be. He will be a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, a herald. It's going to be hard for me to say that well. And a guide. Okay, listen to these two sentences. Because something so huge and historic will happen in Jesus, John will serve as a herald. Because something so rare and unexpected will happen in Jesus, John will serve as a guide, a herald and a guide. So first, Zechariah prophesies that because something so huge and historic will happen in Jesus, John will serve as a herald. Look again at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for since because you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Luke will talk about John's work of preparation in two ways in his book. Earlier in chapter 1, Gabriel told Zechariah that his son, John, would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The first work of preparation that John does is he prepares God's people for the Messiah. But then in chapter 3, Luke quotes Isaiah 40 in similar ways to what he has said here in verse 76. And he says that John, in his ministry, went before the Lord and prepared the way or the road of the Lord. That in his ministry, in John's ministry, valleys were filled in, mountains were made low. That the crooked places in the road were straightened, that the rough places were smoothed out. And the picture being painted here is that of a royal king traveling to a distant land and the herald going in front of him, telling everyone that the king is on his way and they need to get ready for the king's arrival, that they need to become so ready for the king that even the roads on which the king will travel should be improved and that their roads to the main road should be improved so that they can see him. And so the herald goes before the king to prepare his ways, to prepare his roads. Verse 76, for you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Think about it like this. A hundred years ago, a circus would travel around, set up a tent, and perform. And the circus could literally be the biggest thing that had happened in a county for years, particularly in the Midwest, Kansas, that area of town, Okay could be the biggest thing that happened in decades, actually. All right? So in a day and an age, without internet, without email, without TV, without even radio, the circus, weeks before arriving at this 
large town in a county uh, would send messengers, would send heralds into the nooks and crannies of that county to announce the coming of the circus. The heralds would encourage uh, people to be prepared to make plans to do whatever was necessary to be present at this historic event. Uh, Oftentimes, the heralds were actually circus act apprentices. They, They would perform acts and they would do routines that would captivate the crowds and they would do things that had never been seen before. And then they would promise that at the actual circus itself, the circus would include acts far greater than theirs and be in multiple rings. If you will, let that serve in a way as an illustration for what John is doing for Jesus. At John's birth, Zechariah prophesies that because something so huge and something so historic will happen in Jesus, John would serve as a prophet and as a herald. In chapter 3, John's ministry in the wilderness has gone national. He's experiencing widespread popularity. And the people are asking and wondering, they're they're wondering, is John the Christ, is he the Messiah? And, And John said, if you will, my act might be more impressive than anything you've ever seen. But the one who comes after me is, quote, mightier than I. The strap of his sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John is saying, don't miss it. Prepare his ways. He will come. It will be huge and historic. It will happen whether or not you show up for it. Don't miss it. Make plans to be there. Get your city, get yourself ready for this event. In short, we'll come back to it more in a moment. What is the huge and historic reality in Jesus to which John is a prophet and a herald? Listen to chapter three. This is not in your worship folder. It's in your Bibles. Chapter uh, chapter three, verses four, five, and six. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways or roads. And this is why. And all flesh shall see the salvation, the deliverance of God. Remember, Zechariah in this song that is sung at the birth of his son doesn't even mention his own son until the very end of the song. First eight verses are all about Jesus, not John. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, now note this. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. But, but Zechariah is so filled with faith that he speaks of Jesus and all Jesus will do in the past tense. This is a regular habit of prophets in the Bible that they speak of future things as if they're in the past because they're so sure that God will do it. Rabbit trail. Side note. I want you to think about the transformation in Zechariah's life. Early in chapter one, Zechariah is described as one without faith. Here at the end of the chapter, it is amazing and encouraging to me Uh, that Zechariah is so filled with faith, he's talking about things in the future as if they're in the past. This is a rabbit trail. It has to be the sermon for another day, but literally a lot of you asked me about this, the sermon two weeks ago when we talked about doubt. So let me just say this quickly. You ready? Zechariah, like Mary, doubted God's promises. But where Mary doubted God's power by asking how will this be, Zechariah doubted God's goodness by asking, how shall I know this will be? 
In response to Mary's doubt about his power, God gave her a sign that was positive. Her distant relative had conceived a child. In response to Zechariah's doubt about God's goodness, God gave him a sign that was hard. He was deaf and dumb for a year or more. But it's encouraging. Moral of the story, doubt his power, not his goodness. Just joking. Don't doubt either. It's encouraging in this way, just like the sermon we had on Mary's doubts. The promises of God are the promises of God. God moved towards Zechariah in grace, and he worked uh, with Zechariah until his promise was fulfilled and until Zechariah believed. Zechariah's doubt did not thwart the promises of God. Zechariah is speaking of future things as if they're past because he's so filled with faith. Let's look at those realities. Back to verse 68, off the rabbit trail, off the side note. The huge and historic reality, God and Jesus has visited and redeemed. Verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation, a mighty salvation for us. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verses 74 and 75, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Here's the huge and the historic. God is sending a mighty Savior to deliver his people from their enemy in order to bring them into his very presence forever. And Zechariah tells his infant son, verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. Second, Zechariah prophesies that not only will John be a herald to the huge and historic realities that come in Jesus, but that John will serve as a guide because of the rare and unexpected things that will happen in Jesus. Listen closely. John will not only tell people that Jesus is coming, John will also guide the people into how they can be where Jesus is when he comes, okay? Zechariah says it three ways in verses 77 and 79. In verse 77, Zechariah says that John will give knowledge of salvation to Jesus' people. So John won't give deliverance, but he'll give knowledge of Jesus' deliverance. In verse 79, John is said to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The picture is of people in abject darkness, surrounded by danger, unable to move for for fear of walking into death. And John, according to Zechariah, will shine light on that situation so that God's people will be able to walk away from death and towards life. John doesn't save. He shines light on God's salvation. Third, keep going in verse 79. Zechariah says that John will guide our feet into the way of peace. God's salvation is the way of peace. John's role is to serve as a guide, showing how to get into that road of peace. Two pictures for your mind. If you've ever uh, visited the famed Alcatraz in San Francisco, you know that you have two options. Or when I was there... Eight years ago, you had two options. I have no idea what they do now. But back then, you could buy a ferry boat ticket that got you onto the island and into the old prison. Or for a few dollars more, like $2, I think, you could get the guided tour in addition to the boat ride. 
Now at that time, again, eight years ago, the tour was this audio headset with an hour long recording that would guide you through the facility and tell you the story of Alcatraz. The first time that I went to Alcatraz, I decided to save the money and I opted out of the guided tour. The building was fascinating, the view was glorious, um, I had a good time. The next time I went to Alcatraz, not long thereafter, I decided that I had discovered all I could on my own and I, I would pay the $2 and I would have the guided tour this time. It wasn't until the second time that I realized how much I missed the first time and how much I, under, I misunderstood the first time around. Second picture. I've been whitewater rafting on several occasions. Uh, from the simplicity of the rafting options in North Carolina to the more complex options in Colorado. And when you're rafting and you show up, you have the choice of whether or not you're going to pay a little extra and have a guide, a guide that will sit in the back of the raft and give you instruction and steer you to where you want to go and, in fact, take over if everybody falls into the middle of the raft. Or you can be cheap and uh, try and save money and guide yourself. I voted the cheap option. Uh, but the people I, I were with, they were willing to pay the 15 extra dollars. So we got a guide. And we got almost to the end. The guide had us get out of the boat. He had us walk downstream. He had us look at a rapid uh, that was coming up. And, and he told us all about it. He told us what side we want to enter in on. He told us the speed at which we would need to go. He gave us all the instruction we would need to make it through this rapid. If entered correctly... The rapid would be fun and exhilarating, uh, something we would talk about for a long time. If entered incorrectly, at the wrong angle, at the, right si at the wrong side of the river, at the wrong speed, the same rapid could be disastrous and even deadly. In the same way, John goes before Jesus as a guide to prepare the people for their experience of Jesus to give them instruction on how to enter into relationship with Jesus in the appropriate way. Remember what we said about chapter one. Gabriel told Zechariah, your son is gonna go before the Lord and not just prepare his ways. He's gonna make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John, if you will, before people hit the whitewater rapid that is Jesus, he's a guide. He gets them out of the boat. He walks them ahead. He shows them how to enter in. He shows them how to go in such a way that they'll enjoy Jesus. Live through the experience and talk about it for years. John goes before Jesus to give knowledge of salvation, to give light to those in darkness, to guide feet into the way of peace. Now, we're finally ready to ask the question, what guidance did John give in light of the rare and unexpected realities that were going to happen in Jesus? Look down at the last verse of our text, verse 80. And the child, that being John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Remember from the introduction, Luke is weaving together the birth of Jesus and the birth of John. And this is Luke's way of hitting the pause button on the storyline of John in order that he can pick up Jesus' birth and Jesus' adolescence in chapter 2. John reappears in chapter 3 on the day of his public appearance to Israel. When chapter 3 starts, we're supposed to remember that the last thing Luke has told us about John is that he's going to go ahead of Jesus and prepare Israel for the experience of and the deliverance of Jesus. 
If you've been with us during this series in Luke, you'll know that the Israelites' most influential religious leaders were teaching them that Israel needed to be saved. Israel needed to be delivered by the Messiah. The Pharisees and the scribes and the synagogue rulers were establishing traditions and oral laws, and they were telling the Israelites that if they would just obey enough, if they would get to a certain level of performance, that if they would just keep the law long enough, God would send the Messiah and he would deliver them from the Romans. That the Messiah would certainly be merciful because they could never be perfect, but the Messiah would wait until they were good enough to be saved. And so when Zechariah prophesies that John is the prophet that prepares the way for the Messiah and prepares the people for the Messiah, they would have thought we're doing great. We need to keep performing and we need to keep obeying. We need to keep doing what is right and we need to keep keeping the law. And this is how we'll be prepared for the Messiah. And 30 years later, John comes onto the scene, sent by God to prepare his people for his rare and unexpected Messiah. His message is not to perform, and it is not to do the right thing. It is to repent and be forgiven. John, excuse me, Luke chapter 3, verse 3. The preparation of God's people for their Messiah. And John went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repent. Confess, own, turn from your sin. Do not perform. Not do the right thing, but receive forgiveness for the wrong things you have done, the wrong things you are doing, the wrong things you will inevitably do. Zechariah says it plainly in the Benedictus, verse 77. John will give knowledge of salvation and deliverance to God's people, not in their performance, but in the forgiveness of their sins. If John had only been a herald of the huge and historic things to come in Jesus, the nation would have gone out to Jesus and they would have handed him their good deeds. But John is a herald and a guide and he prepares not just the way of Jesus, but the people of Jesus. And he has them go out to Jesus in need of forgiveness and grace. This is how you enter into the whitewater rapid that is Jesus. This is how you make it through. This is how you enjoy him. This is how you grow in your relationship to him. This is how you talk about him with fondness and worship for a very long time. Humble repentance and faith. It's hard for us to imagine how countercultural, how counterintuitive this message would have been for Israel at this time of John. If you look at your text in verses 59 to 63, Luke spends an awful long time, an awful lot of time, let's say, writing about the naming of John. And to us, we're like, why does he waste so much time on that? And I don't want us to lose the significance here. At the time period of John's birth, the religious leaders and relatives would have gathered for the circumcision of a boy on the eighth day. That's in accordance with Genesis 17. At that time, evidently, the name of the boy would become official. But also, and this is according to the the tradition of the time, the name was given by the father through the religious leaders to the community. And the name was always a family name. Zechariah had been unable to speak for a year, and the crowd was very set on naming John Zechariah Jr., verse 59. 
But Elizabeth, with urgency and even rudeness, says, no, he shall be called John. The community pushes back and they turn to Zechariah to see what he wants. And he asks for a writing tablet. And he writes very clearly and very definitively in the present tense, verse 63, his name is John. The name that Gabriel gave from God in verse 13. Listen to what the name John means in Hebrew. Yahweh has given grace. Yahweh has given grace. From the very beginning of his life, at his circumcision and naming, even there, John is pointing to the fact and preparing the people for a God who gives grace. If Israel goes without a guide, they'll bring to him performance and they will die. If they go in repentance and faith, they live. Something so rare and unexpected that a guide is needed. Look with me at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The first word Zechariah gives by the fulfilling of the, by, by the filling, excuse me, of the Holy Spirit, the first word about Jesus is not deliverance. That means rescue from slavery. The first word he gives is redemption. That's the payment of a ransom. Verse 68 is actually less clear to us because of the way our translation gives it. In the original language, the word for redeemed is not a verb, it's a noun. And in front of that word, there is a verb. It's the verb that's not in our text, but it is this one, to accomplish. Luke literally says, God visited his people, that's Jesus, and accomplished redemption. If you leave your car in an illegal spot long enough, your car will be towed and impounded. In order to get your car back, you'll have to go to the redemption center, pay a fine, redeem it, and free your car from slavery. To redeem is to pay the price, is to provide the ransom. In Hebrews 9, we're told that the ransom price for the redemption of God's people is the precious blood of Jesus. He did not come to people who were good enough for him. He came to be the ransom price, to accomplish redemption, to live and die not for good people, but for sinners. I'll conclude with a review of what we've been learning in Advent, all of it found yet again in our passage. The Bible keeps telling us the gospel over and over and over. Because of the redemption we have in Jesus' life and death, look at your text. We are, verse 71, delivered from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, primarily Satan. We have verse 77, the forgiveness of sins, because when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, uh, they didn't just, uh, they, they were not guiltless in the transaction. They were both tempted and rebellious. We are able, verses 74 and 75, to serve in God's presence without being afraid in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Not because we're good and we approach him with our unholiness and righteousness. We've already established that we need forgiveness. We're in his presence, holy and righteous. Because when Jesus died for our sins, 
He gave us his record. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to accomplish redemption and it was so beautiful and so profound and so glorious and so rare that a prophet needed to come before you to prepare us for it. We thank you, Jesus, that when you came as king, you did not come and rescue those who were powerful and good and wealthy and able to advance your cause. You came to people who were broken and guilty and dead in their sins. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not come primarily talking about yourself. You came to accomplish redemption. And so we would understand you sent a prophet to explain it to us. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you show us where we are living the good life, where we're living trying to be good instead of resting in who we are in Jesus? Would you show us how we're trying to approach the throne with with things in our hands instead of empty-handed, clinging to Jesus? Would you show us that if we could understand these realities and turn from them, we would experience freedom and joy and growth like never before? Although we've heard it, many of us, a thousand times, would you impress it upon fresh hearts and new ears of who Jesus is and how to be prepared for him. In your name we pray, Jesus.